Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thank you for joining us for our last show of 2020. We'll be back in 2021, though. This week, we have New York Times sports reporter and best-selling author of American Pharaoh and Saint Makers, Joe Drape. Remember, we take your questions each episode. So write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. And don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by our friends, Magic Spoon. Oh, do we love Magic Spoon. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. And we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps to make this podcast happen. So tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James, 2020 is drawing to a close. Thank God. Before we look ahead, let's just look back. Uh, it's been a really bad year. No other way to put it. <clears throat> but let me first start off by celebrating the heroes uh, of this year. The nurses, the doctors, the emergency room orderlies, the first responders who work 24-7 all over America. More than a few contracted the virus. Some died. They saved many lives. They did it with great confidence and great compassion. Some of them went and they finished at one place and they traveled to another. Uh, and uh, when I drop by Giant or CVS, the only place I go out to these days, and I see someone in scrubs, I really do go up and thank them. So uh, in, in Washington, as we noted last week, Tony Fauci uh, turned 80. He has been extraordinary for us. But I, I, I really do think in a very bleak year, these were people who more than rose to the occasion. Yeah, I agree. And I, th- I think we got to put these scientists in there, too. I mean, assume yep. that this goes as well as it looks like it's going so far, uh, that, that there's a lot to be said uh, for these people. And, of course, one of the, the terrible things has just been the behavior of, of, of a large number of American people and, and the, the, the sheer stupidity of this anti-mask movement. Um, it, 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 intellectually, it, it, it makes no sense at all. Uh, I mean, your idea of liberty ends with the, not the, when the guy next to you's health begins. Right. This is not a question of, of liberty. And I know people, it, 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 it's just unfortunate how politics just got in the middle of this entire thing. And, uh, you know, there'll be thousands of books written, but the buffoon, not just the incompetence, the buffoonery of this administration, we just, you, you forget about how idiotic some of the stuff that he said it is, or some, oh. even some of the stuff that he did. I, I, I well, mean, the, the Clorox thing is just that you can't beat that. I mean, it's just, oh, it's so stupid. Well, and of course, we're not surprised by him. And I guess, and we're also not surprised by the people around him. Uh, Scott Atlas, the make-believe disease expert from the Hoover Institute, who did far, far more harm than good, uh, great discredit. We talked about all the people who are great credits to the medical profession. Uh, certainly, you wouldn't include Scott Atlas in there. Peter Navarro, the heir to the know-nothings of the 19th century, who 
popped off about things he knew nothing about. And then the clueless son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who back in April said, we've taken this out of the hands of the doctors and scientists. Well, you know, since then, well over a quarter million people have died. So, uh, yeah, it was it was. We were going to have a problem. Every country had a problem. But if we had handled this the way the Germans handled it, the way the Canadians handled it, there would be about 150,000 more Americans alive today, James. The Australians. Do you know yeah. that life in Melbourne is about 95% of normal? You can go to the theater. You can go to dinner. And they just shut that thing. If we had just shut this thing down right. for three weeks. It's the only thing you can do. And then you had the, 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 all of these conservative intellectuals bragging about how Sweden was handled. You know, for some reason or another, Sweden, which has traditionally been the bogeyman of conservatives, I mean, it, and of course, Sweden abandoned that policy. It was so unsuccessful. It was a disaster. Yeah. They did far worse than Denmark or Norway or any of the uh, adjoining countries. Ever brought a fact that the three the people I did said this was a giant mistake. We out of it. right. I, I mean, in the U.S., no one ever makes a mistake. Everything in, in and this is really true on the right. And it, it's just you know, Laura Ingham or, or Sean Hannity, they just never make mistakes. They just move on. And they keep oh, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to correct you. Lou Dobbs, the other day, now he didn't admit he made a mistake, but he did an entire segment uh, as an apology oh. of some of the drivel he's been putting out. But he did it for a very good reason, James. <laughs> They're going to get yeah. sued otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And, and Newsmax, which has become my new go-to place, because Fox yeah. is, it, it, you need something a little bit crazier than Fox. I can't, I got to get one American network on my satellite. Uh, I got to get that because I actually watch that stuff. And however nutty you think it is, it's even nuttier. And I bet you I watch on average 40 minutes of Fox or, or, or Newsmax a day. And I go to all of these, you know, Red State Gateway pundits. People don't know the depth of how crazy these people are. And how many people fought? Look, look at Trump. They, they were raising $750,000 an hour on like November the 6th. The, the betting markets, this, this is my favorite story. They, they, they were saying it was like taking candy from a baby. They were betting on Trump on November the 10th. Yeah. People just kept shoving their money to him. It, 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 it is, it, it, what is stunning is the amount of money that people have willingly, and I suspect that 90% of them don't have it, are willingly turning over to him. When they tell you in the fine print, the, the press has told you this a, a thousand times, they're pocketing 75% of it. Right. Yeah, I don't know, I, honestly, Albert, I don't know, you, you can't steal from someone who wants to be stolen from. And, and you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of fools that have money, and they're getting separated from it. Well, I don't mind those fools. I what I worry about a little bit are the people, the you know, the the people who really have to scrape, and they're sending five or ten bucks in because they're being they're being bamboozled uh, by this con man. But uh, you know, he's never met a scam he doesn't like ever. No, no. Uh, everything, 
at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the money is at the bottom of everything they're coming up with. Now, this is just uh, a little thing, but uh, last week there was a story that the two people at Deutsche Bank that handled the Trump account have suddenly resigned. I don't know if I'm, I'm reading too much into that, but I think it's just something that, that we should note for the record. Well, I, I mean, Deutsche Bank is under a criminal investigation. Correct. And again, in, in according to NBC News, so is Rudy Giuliani. But the chances that Trump doesn't pardon him is zero. You don't but, expect, you, you never would expect a pardon from Mr. Giuliani, but we won't even go there. James, the other thing is, you know, let's not give credit to people who did, you know, 5% the right thing at the end while 95% uh, disgracing themselves. And I think particularly of the Attorney General, William Barr. Oh, man. Uh, you know, when, when I, I think that Barr, like, cares about his place in the Washington legal establishment. And I think it had kind of dawned on him after the, the nine to nothing court, all right, that he was stuck too far out there. And, and, and he tried to, like, come back in. I, I, th I think that kind of shook him up. You know, he does, he cares with, with you know, Neil Gorsuch and, and John Roberts uh, think of him. And I, I, that's, I, I think that, I think that shook him up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I that's agree. A, it's a let's, let's look ahead to 2021. Jeez, it's going to be a lot better because the vaccine is going to be effective. It's going to be out there. It may take three, four or five months for a lot of people, and that will change our lives uh, in so many, many good ways, and we all can celebrate that. And you were right earlier, it was not just the healthcare workers, but the scientists and, um, and, and these companies that just did a phenomenal job. But James, politically, I, I wish I were more upbeat about 2021. I mean, Lord knows I'm thankful that we don't have uh, the career criminal in the White House, or won't have him in the White House anymore. But boy, it's going to be a tough slog. I think we're going to, you know, we always do this in politics. This is the most important moment. This We stand on the precipice. This will decide everything. And, you know, well, you know, Georgia is going to tell us a lot. And it may, and the lot it may tell us is we're just stuck at where we are. And, it, and that will happen if, you know, they both, they win both seats, you know, by a little bit. But, uh, you know, what? Let's before we issue a final verdict, a lot of our thinking is going to be clarified on the night of January the 5th. Uh, I, I have to say that. So maybe we'll be even more pessimistic, which is a real possibility. Or maybe we'll see that, uh, that the time's running out on these guys. I... I I, I just say this going forward is right now, I don't know what the chances, and we, you and I have been pretty consistent in this. I don't know if the Democrats' chances are, are 48% or 52%, but whatever they are, they are better than they were a month ago. That I'm comfortable saying. 
And well, I don't, we've said this before, James. Uh, I think January 5th uh, is, I've never seen um, a more important, two more important Senate races, special election Senate races held on the same day uh, than Georgia on January 5th. The stakes are, they cannot be exaggerated. It is estimated that Trump carried election day by 220,000 votes. So when this, when we are airing, you can look and see, and they, they'll be able to give you a pretty good estimate of who voted and mm-hmm. what the Democrats have in the bank and what do we think that the Republicans are going to win election day by. Uh, obviously, it won't be 220,000 because be, there will be fewer people that vote. I mean, it's going to be a lot. There were 5 yeah. million a little bit in change it voted and people think it's going to be, you know, 4 million in change, which is going to be an enormous, enormous turnout. But we should have a pretty good idea of where this is going on, on, you know, before they vote on January 5th. James turning to the Republicans, obviously they care a lot about um, Georgia, but I, I must tell you, when you talk to them, they are feeling very upbeat these days. Uh, many of them feel that, you know, they can do just as well without Trump. And, and they did incredibly well in November. And they believe, this is a lot of Republicans, they are positioned to take the House in 2022. They're going to control redistricting. Um, I don't like to say it because I think they should have paid a price, as we said earlier. But uh, it's hard to find Republicans these days who aren't pretty optimistic about the future. You know, it is. And, and- the Democrats, the, I mean, there has to be some real self-examination here. I, I, I mean, we, this was a, just a disappointing election. I, I mean, we, of course, that Biden's going to be president is, you know, an enormous thing. But we just didn't do very well. And there is something that we do that just scares the hell out of people. And I, I know that the, the defund the police stuff, the, the, the problem is the, the, the left, the, the real left in the party, they have so much to do with the image of the party and have so little to do what, in most instances, people actually do. But everybody gets caught up in this language. And, you know, I think some of this is just, a, a, a rebellion out of the sort of smugness and self-righteousness or something that people have because it, there were a lot of people in this country that voted against Trump, that couldn't stand him, that voted against Democrats. And there is something that that we do that just doesn't, it, it not only does it not connect with people, it just puts people off. Right. And, you know, you know I, I agree. Let me, give credit. Let me give one bit of credit to a week or so ago, the governor of California, I think, made a good appointment for the Kamala Harris seat, uh, which will be vacant next January. He was under a lot of pressure from some lefties uh, to name <clears throat> various candidates, but he named the secretary of state, uh, Alex Padilla, who was the son of Mexican immigrants. I think, James, this is right. I think it's right that, that Hispanics comprise 40% of the California population. And this guy, apparently, by everything I've read, at least, is a qualified guy, been a good secretary of state, will be a good senator, and he resisted the pressure from the left. So uh, a couple cheers for Gavin Newsom. Yeah, there's a, uh, 
I, I, again, I, I go back to uh, New York Magazine, and there's a very good piece in there by a guy named Eric Levitz about the left and the Democratic Party and how they're kind of turning on each other. Um, it, 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 it is a problem. It is a huge image problem. And unfortunately, the left had a, a, an election that they did terribly in. They drugged the national ticket down. They got slaughtered in that Omaha seat. But weirdly enough, in the House of Representatives, they're more, po- they're more powerful than ever. The, the squad is the, the whole Democratic majority. Right. They got more power than they ever had, and they're overwhelmingly rejected by people. I mean, it, it is a real, real, genuine problem. James, let's let's look ahead to 2021. Any one or two figures, obviously Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell, but anybody that might not instantly occur to people that we want to keep an eye on. Um, tough question, right? I'm not sure what my answer is. I, you know, maybe somebody like Mark Warren, mm-hmm. who, who, you know, will... Can you know? I, one of the things that uh, the president, President Biden, is going to have to do is, you know, really, he's going to have to really work hard with with the Congress and, and the Senate and stuff, and he's just going to have to get a couple of designated go-to people. And I think Warner was really influential in putting this package together. And that's, you know, unfortunately, that's just the way business is going to have to be done, and yeah. people have to get accustomed to it. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe after Trump is gone, maybe some other f- people on the Republican side, I feel like they had more, a little more leeway. I don't know that. We all hoped that something like that would happen, but, uh, a few people are going to have some really outside, outsized influence. And again, as I pointed out, even if we win both seats in Georgia, it's Joe Manchin's party. <laughs> right. It is. All right, let's let's turn to sports. Any 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 sports team or figure that is going to surprise, astound, amaze, whatever have you in two thousand twenty one? Oh, wow! You can include right. the Saints well, if you want. Okay, no, I, I, well, I mean, it's hardly going to be a surprise, but if we go, uh, uh. You know, obviously, if Zion Williams, that's not going to be a surprise. I mean, I obviously, have like great hopes for him. Um, uh, you know, in college football, well, Clemson and Alabama, you know, Alabama will be good. So what? I mean, Ohio State. Uh, yeah, well, what's really happening in college football is unnoticed, like the coastal Carolinas of the world. You know, there, oh. there, there's very little that happens at the top. But, you know, Cincinnati, some teams like that, there, there is some 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 change going on at, at some of what we would have considered as, as kind of less, lesser programs. Uh, uh, you know, Texas is having their issues. Uh, you know, we cert- certainly LSU was a, like a disapp- disappointment right now, but uh, I, I suspect it will be okay last year. But, I mean, if you just look at – I'm looking at the top ten this year. Cincinnati is number nine, Iowa State 10, Indiana 11, Coastal Carolina 12. Uh, you know, that's that's some kind of uh, Tulsa 24. 
None of them would have been there. Eight, 22. I mean, that, that, right. that you don't generally see these kind of things in, 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 in the top right. 10. The other well, thing is I, Gonzaga in basketball. Jesus, how do they do that? Who in basketball? Gonzaga. Well, let me, all right. I'll t- I think Gonzaga is incredible. I've seen them play twice on television. They are clearly the best team in the country. But come April or come June, whenever they do play, uh, the final four, if they do, I'll tell you what, they're going to get upset by the Villanova Wildcats. You heard it here first. Uh, I want to leave, I want to say one thing about this year for all the bad things that happened. There's a guy who you and I admire immensely, James, named Bob Greenstein, who uh, is retiring after 40 years of running the most effective ad- advocacy program for poor people in America, the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. Bob has fought for the earned income tax credit. He has fought for uh, uh, refundable tax credits. He's fought for expanding Medicaid. He's fought for food stamps. He fought Jesse Helms in the 70s. And I, and I, I wrote a column on him, and I'll just say one story. When the Clinton administration took over, Bob Rubin, who was no stranger to Washington, came in, and he had a, one of the first economic meetings with, with President Clinton and Gene Sperling. And after a while, he said, who's this guy, Bob Greenstein, you keep talking about? And Clinton and Sperling said, he is the gold standard when it comes to poor people and poor people programs. He has been for 40 years. And as bad as things are for a lot of people uh, this holiday season, it'd be a lot worse without Bob Greenstein, James. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I know him. I, I know of him. I mean, you and him. But I, I think it is very legitimate to say that this guy has probably affected more lives in a positive way than all but a but a very few people. But certainly, of, of anybody, any unelected person, yeah, uh, he really has. And he he's really he's he, he's liberal, but he's not reflective. I mean, he really thinks things through. Uh, and he he's had a, a I mean he, that that guy can retire knowing that he he a lot of people got better educated better health better nutrition because Bob Greenspan Greenstein was yeah, that I, I, I can say that without fear of hesitation reservation or equivocation as they say. Hey James, this episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. That's the family cereal. It's a delicious cereal, zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, only three net carbs in each serving of either the cocoa, fruity, frosted, or blueberry favors. Blueberry is my grandson's favorite, which means you can stay healthy and still enjoy your breakfast. And James, one of the few things that Mary and Judy Woodruff agree with us on, if you listened to last week's show, is Magic Spoon Cereal. another sponsor that sent james a bunch of cereal bar it's the most delicious i love that who are those guys magic spoon oh my god i love that stuff the magic spoon and they're good too they're real good yeah i love our daughter and our grandson who just turned three loves it i mean we've got we've got all generations endorsing magic spoon you know, and isn't it cool for a three-year-old to be able to replicate 
what we did when we were three, except in a healthy way, eating cereal with your little pudgy hands out of a box. Oh, yeah. It's got protein and fiber and everything good in it instead of Captain Crunch. No offense to Captain Crunch. But it's such a – I love their whole tagline or their whole message. It's like being a kid again. You walk around with a box of cereal and you stick your grubby little hands in it and you just stuff them in your mouth. It's the best product with the best message. I love it. Thank you, you guys. You know, wives never agree with husbands on anything. And of course, famously, my wife disagrees with me on more things than most wives disagree on. But it's kind of fun that the whole family agrees on Magic Spoon. And, uh, you know, it, 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 what's really cool about this product is it, 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 it's good for you, but it tastes good. And the, the general Carville rule is that the better it is for you, the worse it tastes. And I got to tell you, I'm right 95% of the time. But this is definitely in that five five percent category. No question. Totally agree with it. And, it, and you know, it's gluten free, it's grain free, it's soy free, low carb, uh, GMO free. So it's got the good stuff. Go to magicspoon.com/slash/warroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code Warroom. That's one word at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in this product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping. Again, magicspoon.com slash warroom and use the code warroom for free shipping. Look for the link in our show notes for Magic Spoon. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. James, we have Joe Drape, the celebrated New York Times writer. Joe, I must tell you, a book about a Catholic priest from Kansas who died 70 years ago wouldn't instantly stir the juices. But your book uh, about Father Caspin, a remarkable man and his march to sainthood, really does. Tell us about him and this story. Well, Father Capon is a guy I came across when I was writing another book. All my previous books were sports books. And in 2008, I moved my family back to Kansas to write a book about a high school football team that had won 70 games in a row. And this is where I first heard about Father Capon. He was from that region. He was revered in that region, mainly because he resonated with a population who looked and acted like him. And as a Midwesterner, I can say that. He was friendly, but not familiar. He was a man of action, not a talker. And he was this Catholic priest who found his true calling as a chaplain in the military. You know, in World War II, he won a Bronze Star and was in Burma, Germany, all over. But he, in Korea, the following war, is really, really distinguished himself. And he's become the most decorated uh, chaplain in military history. And in 2013, he was awarded the Medal of Honor by President Obama for this daring do on the battlefield. And his story is sort of twofold. He saved guys literally from wounded in foxholes during the midst of battles. And then they were all captured and held in the most brutal conditions in Korea by a Chinese prison guards. And he was credited with keeping thousands of them alive just by doing what it took to survive. And that meant 
stealing food. It meant building tools so they could build latrines. It meant uh, saying quick masses to Muslim soldiers, Jewish soldiers, uh, atheists. It didn't matter. This guy was so beloved, Alan James, is that when 53, when they released the prisoners out of Korea, a group from Camp Number 5, where he was, came out led by a Jewish fighter pilot who had never even met the guy, that he, he had been captured long after Father Capon died. And he had carried a cross that he spent four months fashioning out of found materials and a likeness of Father Capon on it. And they marched out to all the newsmen and said, you know, this is the guy who kept us all alive. He had a will of steel and a soul of velvet. And, you know, at the time, he hit the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, Life magazines. He was sort of a celebrated hero. And then he kind of disappeared until this uh, diocesan in Kansas decided to try to make him a saint. Yeah, and you right. I mean, it's a remarkable story that when he was being taken to his death, uh, he said to his uh, uh, captors, forgive me. Um, yeah, he he did. He imitated the life of Christ in all things. He saw the goodness in people. He exuded the goodness to other people. Uh, and yes, when they came to get him, all the men around him rioted. And he said, stop. You know, I'm going where I want to be. I'm going to be with God in heaven. And as they carried him out, he not only forgave all his Chinese captors, but he asked them for forgiveness. Wow. Uh, that's a you know another Kansas priest, Father Hotsey, has led this campaign for sainthood uh, uh, for Father Capon. Uh, that's that's pretty uphill, isn't it? There's Vatican politics can be pretty rough, and it. I think I read you wrote it took an average of, of 181 years from the start to you become a saint. Yeah, and it's expensive too. They've already got about six hundred thousand dollars in this cause. You know, some costs more than a million dollars. Uh, you know, what happens here, Al, is that, first of all, they have to prove that you lived a life that is worth imitating. And, you know, they put you up through the ringer with theologians and historians to make sure your life was in context. And then you have to have two miracles attributed to you. And Father Hotze, what he did was... He picked up this cause in 2000 and spent most of his adult life amassing information. I mean, as a reporter, it was it's an, a massive, incredible reporting job, Al. He, he delivered 8,672 pages of testimony and of Father Capon's writings from kids from zero cradle to death. And, you know, from that, you, you put that into a narrative. You put it into a life story. And that's what starts the process off of getting picked apart. And, you know, he was from the region. He had a prayer card. And for your non-Catholics there, a prayer card is just what it sounds like. It's a little two-inch thing with a couple a paragraph long asking a saint to intercede on your behalf for whatever problems you're having. And he knew of him. He felt a kindred spirit to him. And he just really dug in and spent 14 years, you know, roping in seminarians, volunteers, just trying to get his, this candidacy off the ground. Wow. James. Well, as a cradle Catholic and a pre-Vatican II altar boy, I'd almost like 
given up on me. Never, you know, most of the stories you read about the church have not been very favorable. And I, I, this book just came along. And I just think it's such a cool thing that you did this to just remind people, you know, that there's real goodness in this world. I mean, at, on a massive scale. But Darwin, did, didn't he, and he reputed to have some kind of physical transformation or figuration before he died? Uh, wasn't there sort of a saintly aura about him? Yes. One of, Mike Dow, who is a West Point graduate, has probably done the mess the most to keep him alive, definitely got the Medal of Honor, said that by the time he died, he looked like Jesus. He had long hair. He was frail. Uh, he wore an eye patch at that point because he had an eye infection. And he basically said that every he could t- take the worst ground, the muddiest ground, the frozen tundra, and wherever Father Capon stood became a cathedral. So he really did become sort of this ethereal, divine figure to these guys. Wow. What a, what, what, what a story. Um, so, uh, you know, you did this, uh, Al and I got this story on, we're going to talk about sports a little bit because I got the great Joe, Joe Drape here, uh, about the impact that this COVID has had on sports in Wisconsin, which I thought was a brilliant idea to try to tell one story. And from that, uh, we can extrapolate. How do, do you how, when sports comes back? Do you think it's going to be like it was in 2019, or do you think there's going to be any kind of changes or, or attendance, or I, just the whole thing? How how traumatized will sports be when when this? I, I think sports from- is devastated, and it will not come back the same. I mean, you know, we tried to look at it as an industry, like you'd look at airlines or hospitality, and you know, you basically have had. at least, maybe 70% of your revenues just wiped out right there. You've lost the whole live component of it. And are people going to want to go back and sit with 70,000 people and yell and scream and unload all that viral load they talk about? I think that's going to be slow coming back. You know, and I think to me, the biggest eye opener was, you know, sports has kind of become like Valentine's Day. It's a made-up pastime, you know. So we had five months where there was no sports, and everybody said, sports got to come back. Sports got to come back. Well, when sports came back, we had already gone on with our lives, and we had found other things to do. And so the ratings are crippled. You know, it came back, and people can say, oh, politics, ate some oxygen, the fact that they were competing all at once. You know, when I went back and looked at the numbers, Everything but the NFL's television ratings have been cratering over the last decade. Baseball, basketball, you know, except for the four majors in golf and tennis, those ratings are non-existent. It's a sport I cover, and I know James follows and has invested in horse racing. It's only a three-date sport, the Triple Crown. So, you know, I think they've seen this market just go away. So how do you build it back up? And it's going to have to readjust everything. I mean, salary negotiations are going to be a lot different. Uh, You know, I poor Dak Prescott. I'm a Kansas City Chiefs fan. Patrick Mahomes got his money before this happened. Uh, Poor Dak Prescott put a franchise year on it. Then he gets hurt. Now, is Jerry Jones or anybody else going to pay the premium 
next year coming off an injury? We'll find out, but I doubt it. Uh, you know, is uh, Nike going to spend as much money on endorsements? Don't think so. Are the networks going to go up their billions on this? Uh, I don't think so either. So, yeah, I think this has totally reset the whole sports economy. Well, boy, uh, it, you're right. And, and horse racing, uh, I, this is a passion of yours and, and a passion of mine. Uh, they, they had, there was something in the relief package uh, that related to horse racing. Are you, are you familiar? Have you read about this? Oh, yeah. No, I, this is a Horse Racing Safety and Integrity Act. They've been trying to push this uphill for eight years. It basically, in, in a nutshell, puts central command for drugs and safety into USADA. And they're the outfit that tests and rules the Olympics. And they're the guys who caught Lance Armstrong. Uh, it brings uniform and a league office somewhat into the, the fold. Uh, and before that, and like today, there's 38 different jurisdictions. Everybody has their own rules, has their own budgets. Uh, you know, it's a wink and a nod in a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I just got off the phone because I'm writing about this with Arthur Hancock III. He's fourth generation. And, you know, 30 years ago, he stood up at a symposium industry and said, this sport's become drugs and thugs, and we need to change that or we're going to be out of business. And 30 years later, they've seen their breeding business dwindle, their on-track handle dwindle. This was a move that they had to make, and it you know, it got thrown in on this because Mitch McConnell is a Kentuckian, and you know, it's a billion-dollar industry down in Kentucky, and in the farms alone, and uh, tourism, the way the horse farms bring people in. So this really had to be done. They got a lot of hard work to do from here. And you guys are up to it on, on more than I. Is our president going to sign this bill or are we going to reset everything? No, it'll, it'll, he'll, he'll, if he doesn't sign it, they'll override his veto. He's, uh, he's yesterday now. Um, Joe, I, I was dazzled by that New York times piece that you co-authored. First of all, you, you, such a great venue. This was going to be a big year in Badgerland. Brewers in the playoffs, the Greek freak NBA player of the year. The pack is back. That's a real sports culture out there, as you know. Uh, It really affects the whole state economically, but also culturally, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's where we landed on that. I mean, we wanted to take this on. And as we talked it through, we said, let's focus on one place. And it just so happened, I'd noticed that they were supposed to have the Ryder Cup. Uh, you had this weekend where Notre Dame was supposed to play Wisconsin in Badgerland. In Milwaukee, you had the playoffs, both in uh, baseball and in, it would have been the opening of the NBA. Uh, and, you know, this is a just like it's a swing state in politics. This, to me, was a great bellwether state for what's going on in sports. And, frankly, the Packers, since they're publicly held, at least has some open books I could look at and see what was going on. And we could actually put dollar figures on it. So it it seemed like the place it seemed, uh, you know, people do work and do things on this. They've got these great bars and restaurants around Lambeau. You've got a great uh, concession companies that employ 700, 800 people. You've got mom and pop advertising stores. And you can really see all the things that we take for granted 
and actually put a measure to them. So that's why we landed there and, and it, it worked and, you know, we're proud of it. And I think people walked away with, you know, it's not just fun and games that a lot of people's livelihoods depend on this and people well, that you wouldn't. Conception. It wasn't just the owners of the bucks or the brewers, but it was the custodians. It was the concession. It was the little restaurants. It was, uh, I mean, it really has, it, it's been a terrible economic blow for the state, for the franchise, but for a lot of citizens. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I'm sitting in New York City right now and, it's getting cold and I just have to walk around the block to see these poor restaurants guys, you know, trying to make it with a little structure with a couple space heaters and pumping out food. And you try to support them on that. I mean, our restaurants have been closed most of the pandemic. They opened briefly in September at 25% and closed uh, just a couple weeks ago. So, you know, I, I look at the devastation of this economically as well as, uh, you know, the, the illness. And this kind of, I'll swing this back to Father Capon is I was writing that in March and April when we were the first ones to go, New York City. And, you know, they're talking about 3,000 people a day dying now nationally. We are dying at the rate of 1,000 right here in New York City. And the sirens were going off and people were terrified. Nobody knew what it was. And just to be able to spend a little time with Father Capone, putting it together, thinking about his life story. And, you know, I didn't want this book. I didn't start this book for it to come out now. But he's really kind of a, a man of our time. Here's a guy who was around tremendous illness, uh, tremendous division, uh, tremendous just burden and worry. And he never got down. Oh, uh, you, you are so right. Amen. That's why everybody should. Should um, you know pay heed to this and 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 read the Saint Makers if you can, James. You want to wrap this up with a great well, guest? Well, yes, I'd say the, what really was excited me about the book is look, the church is in trouble. It's in real trouble in the United States. It, it just is, and it, I think if if in just the, the raw politics of it, of course, this guy's a saint. They would do well to fast track this. Well. You know, because every story you you read, it, 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 so many of them are negative. I mean, I mean here in the Dawson and Yarns just declare bankruptcy, all right, and that that's pretty common. And you know, if, if the I don't know how much influence the American Church has in Rome, it's disputable, but it has some. And they should be, and I, you know, they should be an all-out fight on the part of American Catholics that let's get this guy canonized, let's get a hero out there, let's get a story that that, that people can rally around. And uh, I, I, when I was reading about this book, I said, oh, shit, we got to get Joe Drake. My God, we got to get this guy on the show. People need to hear this story. And, you know, sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. This time I was right. So I, I, I go ahead and take credit. You know? But I have one final question. I think of Kansas sports. Is that a, been a real good biography on Bill James? Because he might be the most influential person in, in sports ever come out of Kansas. You know, there hasn't, and he's still sort of of us. So I don't think you're kind of ahead of your time of framing it that way. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, there has not been. There has not been. 
I guess what I'm saying, if you're thinking about your next book, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I've written, I've written football books, horse racing books, now a religious book. I don't know what, what's next. But, James, just to your point on the saints, you know there's only seven American saints out of 10,000, and you know only two of them were born on American soil? I did not know that. I, I knew and, they were, and were they both women, Joe? Well, both women, all seven are women. Well, I, I just think, I, I, look, if I'm sitting there in the Vatican and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking like a politician, all right? I'm saying, man, we need, you know, and, I, you know, I don't know if it's Cardinal Dolan or, or, or whoever it is, you know, you know, that, that whole thing, some people have a lot more juice than other people. And, you know, when, when you're up against the wall, you, you, you got to do something pretty dramatic. And my own view as an American Catholic is, is, is and for not for, for not all totally bad reasons, we're up against a wall. And I think you threw these guys a lifeline. I hope they take it. I, well, you know, as the House Episcopalian, let me just tell one Catholic politics story, Joe. And this comes from my dear the, the, Tim Russert, who was a dear friend of both James and me. And he was taking the Today Show to the Vatican and he wanted to get the Holy Father on air. And that was really tough. And he talked to a, one of the political types over there who said, well, you got to go to, you know, um, Bishop Kroll in Philadelphia and he can help you. And he went to Bishop Kroll and Bishop Kroll basically said, would you take the Philadelphia Boys Choir with you? And he said, sure. And the Pope agreed to see him. And the source in Rome said, that's because because uh, um, uh, Bishop Kroll delivered for the Pope on the second ballot. So you find whoever delivered for Francis uh, and go to them, and that'll, that'll, that'll speed along this well-deserved sainthood. I'm, I'm with you. You guys, you guys are the masters here. I may have to bring you in on the campaign. Well, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to help I, because uh, I am a thousand percent certain this guy is a saint, and I am two thousand percent certain that the American Church needs a, a good story, and this is one. They, they can't be so stupid to let this go by, but we'll see. Yeah, it sure is. I want to urge everyone out there to read Saint Makers. Joe, thank you. You're a terrific guest. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a good holiday. You're, you're a Catholic and Episcopalian. I can say Merry Christmas, guys. That's yeah. it. Man. Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right, James, our favorite segment. It's the last time of the year. The question and answers. David in Livingston, New Jersey, asks, why isn't there a plan to bring to the floor, I guess he's talking about the House, more COVID relief, voting rights, immigration reform, health care reform, and others? Uh, would a threat, do they worry about the caucus? Um, I, I'm going to turn it to you, but I'm going to say the, the problem, David, is they don't have the votes. Well, I think they passed a lot of that stuff. I mean, if, if, if you talk to the House Democrats, they voted a $3 trillion COVID relief right. program. Right. And, and got very I mean, a lot of stuff that people say that the House Democrats should do, they've already done. And probably the, the messaging part was, was probably not that all that great. But if you look at what they have passed since they took power in January of, of, of 2019, it's staggering. Yeah. You, you don't know about it because it went into Mitch's mausoleum. 
but uh, there's a lot of, I, I, I don't have it off the tip of my fingers, but a lot of the stuff that you've brought, that uh, this gentleman brought up has already been done. Yeah, it's it's been done by the House and with a new session and the Democratic president uh, and a Democratic-controlled uh, Senate, uh, thanks to Georgia, uh, maybe wishful thinking, uh, they're going to pass that so-called H.R. 1 election reform in January before they take a break. Uh, and maybe it'll die in the Senate again, but, uh, you know, we may be surprised. Um, we have a, a letter here from, uh, I hope I pronounce this correct, and he stresses he is a male anarchist in New- Newton, Pennsylvania, and he said he was a field intern this year for Christine Fanello, who was a campaign in Pennsylvania 1, and I know that's the one congressional suburban district in Philadelphia that still is held by a Republican. Can we flip that seat? You know, she may have been a great candidate, but and I don't know, Brian Fitzpatrick, that's Bucks County, but when you are a Republican and you win in 18 and you win in 20 with Donald Trump at the top of the ticket in Bucks County, you ain't going to get beaten in 22 or 24. It's, it's problematic. Yeah, I, agree. I, 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 I just think that the Democrats, you know, they always do all these retreats and retrospectives and panel discussions and everything. You know, uh, those people from New Orleans are coming through again. This time it's Warren. Uh, who said, uh, assuming there's a split in the Georgia-U.S. Senate runoffs, which I still think is unlikely, but ours win one and D's win the other, what strategy should President Biden use with McConnell in the first six months? Well, I mean, it's obvious that one of the things, if there is a split, that the big power that you have is what you bring to the floor. So they they if they split it will, will be a fifty one forty nine, and they can McConnell can bring to the floor or keep right. off the floor anything that he wants. Yeah. I mean, the, the and you're right; it's probably unlikely that it does split. But look, if this somebody wins this thing by ten thousand votes, which is not not at all impossible, they, there's some chance that that happened. I it gets the difference between having fifty seats and the vice president and having forty nine seats is is a lot. It's it's uh, more of a legislative guy than I am, but I, you don't have to be very smart to figure you're, that out. You're right on. You are right on. It is absolutely mm-hmm. night and day. Uh, we have another question from New Zealand uh, who wants to know if the Democratic Party. Uh, it seemed to base its twenty twenty presidential campaign on beating Trump. Did they miss an opportunity? to rekindle traditional relationships with more blue-collar, middle American voters by focusing more of those interests? You know, yeah, a little bit on the presidential level, but Joe Biden tried to do that some. Uh, I I can fault some some candidates on different levels, but I think Joe Biden tried to do it some, but, you know, you can't do it, I guess, in one election. I have cited this before, but Pennsylvania, where I grew up, uh, the feeling was that Joe Biden... Uh, coming from Scranton would be able to do a lot better in those western counties that used to be Democratic and Northeast. He didn't really. He just did slightly better. And it was the suburbs that carried Pennsylvania for him. So uh, I think Biden made an effort. The party has to keep doing that, and the congressional party has to keep doing it. Well, he did pretty. I mean, he did, he did do better in, in, in the state that we lost that close, and he did do a little bit better in, in Wisconsin. There is something 
there's something that, that we do that overly puts these people off. And we're just going to have to, we're going to have to give it real thought. And, you know, now you look back on this and you say, geez, if we didn't nominate Biden, we'd have probably lost. Yeah. I, I mean, he was the, the most, but he never, he was the most center left mainstream, wasn't so very clear on defund the police or anything like that. And the, it, it, when people think of us, think of Democrats, they they don't they, they think of the squad or they think right. of the, 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 this real kind of woke leftist thing, and and it's killing us. And the idea that we're going to fix this by having better canvassing is idiotic. It's just idiotic. No, you got to have, you know, actually the candidates were pretty darn good this year. I mean, really, I, I looked at a lot of those House candidates uh, and they really were pretty darn good. And Cal Cunningham, well. he turned they, into they be a, uh, you know, a, a, sex, a sexter, uh, looked like a good candidate. Uh, but uh, a, a lot of it's messaging. We have Liz from Morro Bay, California. I've never been there. Boy, it sounds like a place I want to go. Yeah. Uh, she said that Trump is purging Pentagon advisory boards and replacing with cronies and hacks. He's done this to a bunch of other places, too. Is it possible to get rid of them after Biden takes office? The answer is some of them, yes. But some of them, like I think he's named these people to the Kennedy um, uh, board, the, uh, the, uh, the Kennedy Center board. I think those are three or four year terms. So there's some people in these places who are undeserving. I was it David Bossy who was put on the the, uh, the you know the National Library Board, Library of Congress Board. I mean, my God! So uh, you know, there's a lot of priorities for Joe Biden. Getting rid of him of as many as you can. Yeah, I think they also put some goon on the Naval Academy Board of Visitors, which is particularly depressing. Yeah, but we're yeah. going to be a long time digging out of this. I, it, it, in anybody well, one of the first things they can do, James, is to get rid of that person who runs that, you know, whatever it's called now, the, you know, the global broadcasting board that's in charge of VOA, uh, a guy named uh, Michael Pack. They put him in. He insisted to the Senate that he wasn't going to be ideological, even though his whole track record was he was a Steve uh, Bannon collaborator. Uh, and he's done nothing but fire good people over there and bring in ideological hacks. So they can get rid of him, I think, on day two. Um, let me see where we go. Uh, uh, Douglas in LA, Douglas, you're a great listener. We're glad you're there, but you say Biden won 51% of the vote and another 34% didn't, didn't vote. And it doesn't the fact that 85% of the electorate did not vote for Trump. Shouldn't Republicans worry about that? That doesn't add up. Um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Douglas. It's, uh, you know, by that logic, you could say what 81% or something didn't, didn't vote for um, uh, Biden. It's, you know, it was a good turnout, best turnout since 1900. So could we do better turnout? But, but, you know, we did well. Yeah. I, 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 I mean, we had, it turned out, but, but they turned out like crazy. Right. I, I mean, I, you know, all, all that I look at is to me in anything, share is the most important thing. And, you know, the share of, the ethnic group, the share of the party, I, you know, self-identified party people and everything else and by every estimate, the, the fact is that they, we did well, but they, they did well too. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and also, you got to give, they, they, they recruited much better in the House. They did. Particularly they, they, women they, they, candidates for the House. Yeah. Um, they, 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 a lot they, of women you know, candidates. They, they got a great job there. All right, listen, yeah. keep, those, keep those letters and emails coming in. We just love this segment. We can't wait to get to it in 2021. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning for 2021. Promise that'll be a better year. I hope we will be too. Happy New Year to everybody out there.